0: Last week, we talked about a biblically-authentic ministry from 1 Timothy, chapter 1. and discovered that there are three responsibilities of the church. Teach the Word, win the lost, and defend the faith. Now Paul jumps directly into our roles as men and women in a biblically-authentic church. Now, one important note at the very beginning. If you do not interpret these verses in light of the church corporately gathered together for worship, you will misinterpret them. If you try to make application of these verses to some situation other than what Paul was making it, you will come up with an erroneous interpretation. So I want to begin reading in verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In verses one through seven of this chapter, we have a call to a global perspective. God wants us to have a worldview, a global perspective. In verses eight through 15, he gives us instructions of practical implication. How does the church function in light of its global perspective? How does the church implement its ministry? And the first thing he talks about is the prayer ministry of the church. You can mark it down, you can highlight it, you can do whatever you want to do, but much prayer equals much power. Little prayer equals little power, and no prayer means no power. Paul is telling us that the first and foremost thing that we do in the life of the church is to pray. Prayer oftentimes is the last resort. It should be the first option. He's not talking about just gathering together on Wednesday night a handful of the faithful who are holding out. He's talking about the priority of the church is its prayer ministry, that prayer is the barometer and the thermometer for what's going on inside the life of the church. And he uses this little phrase, prayers on behalf of all men. Now, I've got to tell you, that shocked the early church. Nero was a hateful, vengeful, ruthless emperor who was a blatant, practicing homosexual. I don't think his name would have been at the top of most folks' prayer list. And yet Paul says to pray on behalf of all men, and he begins to talk specifically about those who are in authority. I'm convinced that we may be getting what we deserve in this country because we've not prayed for all men in authority. We've criticized, we've voted against, we write letters to, but you see, God said, pray. And God knows we'd do anything except pray. I mean, we'll even lick a stamp as long as it doesn't require us to get on our knees. You see, God said, if you're going to be the church that I want you to be, You have to, first of all, pray on behalf of all men. That tells me that the church is essentially a worshiping and praying community, that God has called us to worship and to pray, and there is no limit to the realm of God's concern, and there are no boundaries to God's compassion. God cares for everybody, and so there are several principles here about prayer. First of all, prayers are to be offered for everyone verses 1 through 3. Now, when you read those verses, for kings, for all in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, when he says all, he means all. In fact, he uses all five times in the first six verses. Now, what did all mean when you were growing up? All, no exceptions, no escape clauses, for all men. And notice what Paul says, the prayer of the church is to concentrate on. Now this one is going to hurt, so I'm just going to warn you in advance, pick your feet up off the floor because your toes are going to get stepped on. So you may want to lift your feet now. He did not say, gather together on Wednesday night and pray for the sick and dying. He said, pray for people in authority. You see, the church has relegated prayer to praying for people who are sick and dying, and mostly we pray for people who we think are going to get well so we can praise God for it because we really don't believe that God heals people anyway. Now, is it important? Should we not pray for the sick? No, we should pray for the sick and dying. But what Paul is saying is when the church gathers together, the church should be praying for those in authority for the president, for the governor, for the mayor, for the city council, for the commissioners, for leaders in government, leaders in society, for the church leaders that... You see, God knows something. He knows that everything rises and falls on leadership. And if you don't have the right leadership, you don't have the right kind of church and you don't have the right kind of world to live in. Notice why he says to pray for people in authority, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. What he's saying is nothing should be excluded from the church's prayer ministry, nothing. You ought to pray with a newspaper in your hand. You ought to pray for the Supreme Court. You ought to pray for your congressman for your legislators, for your senators, for their aides, that God would surround them with godly counsel. Because when we pray for those people, then God gives us quietness. You see, God wants us to pray for people in authority. That's kind of the point. I mean, do you pray for people in authority? We are to pray for all men. Secondly, the prayers are to be offered for the salvation of all men. Not just pray, God bless them, But for God to save them, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You see, God's desire and Christ's death leads me to my duty. What God desires is the salvation of all men. Because of the death of Jesus Christ, there is one mediator, that's Jesus, and that tells me what my duty is. Number three, prayers are to be offered in light of the ransom paid for all men. Verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Prayers would be offered in light of the ransom paid for all men. God said, I've made a ransom, I've paid the price, the testimony was born, Jesus came. Now you pray in light of that. You pray in light of what I've done for the world. You see, it's having a world view. And then in number four, prayers are to be offered, and we are part of the answer, verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, verse 7, for which I was appointed a preacher and a teacher. Now, what that means is if we're part of the answer, we have a worldwide passion, a worldwide passion. Here's what I have a hunch happens in our intercessory prayer ministry. We walk inside the door and we see the bulletin board with emergencies and crisis, and we stop right there. And yet there's a Rolodex that sits over here of the names of church members that have got all kinds of things going on in their lives, and you don't know most of them. We have 3,000 members in this church. There's no way you know all of them, but they're supposed to be prayed for because we're to pray for all men. That means if we're not praying through the membership, we're not obeying God. That means if you're a Sunday school teacher and you're not praying for your class by name, you're not obeying God, you're supposed to pray for all men. But then you go around the room and you keep moving around the room and all of a sudden you come to this little corner, the missions corner. And it has prayer letters and all kind of information about what's going on in missions and there's a big map up on the wall. And when I go by that corner and when I look at that map, I say, Lord, here's Albany right here and here's a great big world. And we're just a small part of this great big world, but we are part of your answer. We need to pray. I I get uh, several missionaries that send me email each week. We got an email. In fact, we've updated the prayer uh, chapel two or three times this week with some emails. One family that's been missionaries in a foreign country, and they had uh, her family came in to see them, and her dad and sister were killed in a car wreck the first day they were there visiting overseas. Did any of us pray for them? Email sitting on my desk when I got in this morning. A young lady that a missionary couple was helping, her parents said two or three people in their family had been killed, and she was somebody broke into her room and raped her this past week. And a request for us to pray for her life. You see, we're to have a world consciousness. We're to have a world vision, and we are part of the answer. Part of whatever God does overseas, He does for us praying for open doors. There's a window called the 1040 window. We've talked about it. We put it in the communicator. Nobody reads the communicator, but we put it in there, and it has in there the information at times about the 1040 window, that area of the world where so many lost people live and where there's so little mission outreach, and where are we going? When I was at Bellevue this past week, I was walking down the hall, and they have the flag of nations uh, down their hallway. It's just one flag after another of nations where we have missionaries. And then they have a line of black flags. And those black flags represent countries where we have no mission witness and the gospel is shut out. Are we praying with the world in mind, wanting God to open doors? Because i tell you something, folks, the quicker people get saved, the quicker we can all go to heaven. I've got a selfish motive. I want God to reach a world so I can get out of it. I mean, if you don't have any other motive, pray to that end. You see, we are to pray and we are part of the answer. Now, what that means is this. We have an exclusive faith, one God, one mediator. And that exclusive faith leads to an inclusive mission, all men. One God, one mediator but an inclusive mission, all men. We are to reach all men. I've always been amazed at at American Christianity because American Christians will send money around the world to reach people they won't let come in their church. You see, if I believe there's one God and one mediator, then I believe that if it's good enough for me to send my money around the world to the darkest corners of the world, it's good enough for them to come into my church because after all, it's not my church anyway. It's his church. And all people are precious in the sight of God, and God died for all men, one God, one mediator, all men. Second thing, not just the prayer ministry of the church, but the public worship of a biblically authentic church, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as benefits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. When you read a passage like that, you understand why the lady walked up to me and ate one night and said, you know, I hate Paul. He's a chauvinist pig. LAUGHTER Paul is not being a chauvinist pig. He's outlining how the church is to function. Now, here's an important point. Men and women are totally identical in essence, but different in function. Men and women are identical in essence, but different in function. And you see, equality and identity are not the same. Just write down Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, here's what's happening. Society is masculinizing women and feminizing men. And that is a serious problem. I'm not talking about women wearing pants. I'm talking about everything being unisex. Society is making men more feminine and effeminate and making women more masculine. And what Paul is saying is there are distinctive functions, and male and female are created in the image of God, but there is a distinctiveness about them, and the most distinctive thing about us is that we're men and women. I mean, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And if you don't know what you are, go home and and look in a mirror. I mean, you ought to know what you are. You're a male or a female. And God says that there is a distinction and there is a difference in function. Now, within the church, first of all, the men are to pray, verse 8. The men are to pray. Boy, this command would wipe out most churches. If you looked at the average numbers in prayer meeting, you'd find far more women than you find men. In fact, some men think that their job in the church is to carry the checkbook and park the car. But God says the role of the man is to lead in prayer. And men, if we are not the prayer leaders, We are disobeying the Word of God. If we are not leading on our knees, then we have no right to lead anywhere else. God says the men are to pray. Now, in verse 8, when he says, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension, he is assuming that you've read verses 1 through 7. That would be good that you've read the first seven verses, and now he assumes that, and so he talks about several things. First of all, the importance of prayer. He says, first of all, or of utmost importance. Now, he's not talking there about, now this is number one, and then this is number two. The word there means, if you don't do this, don't do anything else. Now, men, God says, if you don't lead in prayer, don't you try to do anything else. If you're not, first of all, of utmost importance in your house, in your home, in your life, in your church, if you're not leading out in prayer, don't try to do anything else. This is of utmost importance. The second thing he talks about is the nature of prayer, and he gives us four kinds. First of all, he used the word entreaties. This word means supplications, supplications. He's talking there about praying about definite needs and praying with a sense of need or a sense of inadequacy or weakness. It is a calling on the resources of God to help us in a time of need. There's entreaties, then there are prayers. The word prayers is a generic word for all kinds of prayers. In fact, this word literally, the second word that Paul uses, is literally the word for worship. He uses it 37 times, it is the most frequently used word in the New Testament for prayer, and it means to worship God or to focus on God. So what's he saying? He says the men are to make supplication. The men are to focus on God. Now, he's not using men in a generic sense. This is a masculine term. He's talking about men, physically men, not mankind. And he says men are to lead in supplication, and men are to lead... In worship, We are to be the ones who lead out with our hearts and with our lives given to God, freely to God in worship. Now that's uncomfortable for us. But you see, worship is not natural anyway. Worship is supernatural. And if you're going to lead out in worship, you have to allow the supernatural to take place in your life. And not depend on the natural and on your personality, but to be involved in focus on God. Now, the third word he uses is petitions. This word is a word of familiarity and intimacy. This is, this is a word of communion between closest friends. It also carries the idea of one coming to a king with an appeal for his favor. When he uses this word, petitions, he's talking about the intimate relationship that we develop with God in prayer. And by the way, when you're praying like you're supposed to, you get an intimate relationship going with God. I mean, God knows things about me that nobody knows and because He knows it anyway, but because I'm also honest enough to tell Him, because I have an intimate relationship with Him and I can talk to my Father like I can't talk to anybody else. There's a fourth word that he uses, thanksgiving. The the word there is where we get our word Eucharist from. The word means to declare your gratitude, to declare your gratitude. You remember the ten lepers? How many of them came back and thanked Jesus? One. Someone has said we still have the Society of the Thankless Nine, Local 281, with us. Oh, God will bless ten people and one person will say thanks. Oh, we we take our petitions to God. You know what's the amazing thing about an intercessory prayer ministry is everybody will send their petitions. It's oh pray, oh pray, oh pray, oh pray, oh pray, oh pray, and then you try to call them to try to find out if God answered and how God answered. Oh well, I forgot to call you. Uh, They were healed. I'm sorry, I should have called y'all. You see, why is it we're so strong on petitions and so weak in thanksgiving? I'm convinced we don't know how to celebrate what God does in our life. We don't know how to celebrate what God does in church. I don't know how to do that like I should. But thanksgivings are to be characteristic of the men as they lead in worship. It is to be a thanksgiving attitude toward God. It is a rebuke to us for narrow-minded approaches to prayer. Now notice, all four words focus on one thing, on behalf of all men. All those four come back to, are you praying on behalf of all men? Are you thanking God for all men? Are you petitioning God for all men? Are there entreaties for all men? Are there prayers for all men? Is there worship going on in your prayer time? Now the aim of prayer is found in verse 2 so that we can lead a peaceful and tranquil and quiet life. Maybe America is becoming anti-Christian because we're not praying. And when we get desperate enough, we'll start praying. In relation to society, peace. In relation to the Savior, godliness and holiness. The aim of our prayer is that we be at peace with all men, that we have a godly and tranquil life. The aim of our relationship with the Savior is a godly and holy relationship. Now, there are some conditions for prayer. Number one, without sin. 1 John 1, 9, you know what that says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The psalmist said, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Without sin. Now, where does that come from? The little phrase where he uses lifting up holy hands. Do you know that this was the normal prayer posture for the Jews and for the first century church? That when men prayed, they lifted up holy hands to God. Now, the emphasis is not on the hands. The emphasis is on holy. Why? Because it's a sign of surrender. Men, can I tell you something? We don't want to surrender to God because then God's going to tell us how to do it. We don't want to lift our hands up to God and say, "'God, I surrender. Drop all my guns, drop all my weapons, drop all my defenses, and I just surrender to you.'" In the first century, If you walked into the first century church, if you walked into the First Baptist Church of Antioch or First Baptist Church of Jerusalem and you found the men praying, they would have all been praying with their hands up in the air. And some of you are worried about that being a label instead of being a lifestyle. Holy hands. I don't care whether you lift up your hands or not, but I think holiness ought to be the, the, the thing that you're working on. You see, it's not about lifting hands. It's about the surrender of your life to God in holiness. That's what God's trying to get us to focus on. That was a normal prayer posture for them. Now, without sin, without anger, he says without wrath and dissensions. This is the inner attitude. This is the inner attitude that we're supposed to have in prayer. In other words, if we're praying for all men, that means we can't have wrath and dissension toward Nero or the president or the mayor or the county commissioners or anybody else that torques us he says without sin without anger and without disputing no wrath no dissension don't be a dissenter is what he's saying could i tell you something about the conditions of prayer let me let me just interject something here <clears throat> I, I think if you get 3 baptists together you'll get 12 opinions Paul says, without disputing. Now, let me just kind of lean forward a little bit and relax here for a minute and tell you something. Whatever you're concerned about, most of it won't matter in six months. And none of it will matter in eternity. Whatever it is that keeps you from being a man of God or a person of prayer, it really doesn't matter. You see, I'm convinced that most of what we get frosted about is the devil trying to get our focus off of Jesus and focus off the purpose of the church and get us on our petty things and our agendas and our plans, and not on what He wants us to do. Boy, if the devil wants to get me, all he's got to do is get my my attention just diverted so that I worry about things that are not eternal. Tony visited with somebody in the hospital this week. She looked over at him, and I think I'm getting this right. She said, uh, I guess you're here to talk to me about heaven. And he said, well, if you want to talk about heaven, we will. So she started talking about her life, and she made a statement, and I won't get it exactly, but I'll try it, Tony, because Tony came in my office that day and shared it with me. She said, you know, she said, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't matter anymore when you reach this point. Truth of the matter is, folks, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't matter now whether we live another 30 years. Because we are to be at one with God. Now, (laughs) I remember in the 70s when the Holy Spirit became a big issue in Baptist churches. We never talked about the Holy Spirit. Those people down in those other churches down the road talked about the Holy Spirit. Baptists didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. And, you know, you could walk up in a Baptist church and people debating and arguing and fussing about the Holy Spirit. You know, I've got an incredible idea about the Holy Spirit. Why don't we just try Him? I mean, you can sit here and we can debate all night long about baptism and filling and everything else. I'd just like to see a church full of people that were trying Him. Just let him go and let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do in our lives. Wouldn't that be refreshing? Oh, you mean the Holy Spirit would take control? Exactly, which is what he's always wanted to do. By the way, the church added to its number daily, and the church had power, and the church could heal, and the church could minister, and the church had life in the New Testament because the Holy Spirit was in control. And if we want to be a New Testament church with biblical foundations and be biblically authentic, then the thing that has to happen is when people walk in these doors, they must be able to say, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. That's what God wants to do. Let's not debate about it and discuss methods and terminologies and all those kind of things. I mean, I can get into that and I can debate with you about all that kind of stuff, but the truth of the matter is I just want to try to know what it means to have the Holy Spirit in control of my life. I don't care what terms you use, we can discuss that, but the truth of the matter is I just want the Holy Spirit to have control. And if that's wrong, sue me. But you'll have to get in a long line Men are to pray. Number two, women are to be models, verses 11 through 15. Oh, boy. Guys are going, thank God he's about to get on the women now. He's going to tear them up. (laughs) I am convinced there's more nonsense per square inch taught about this passage than anything outside of end-time prophecy. More junk taught in the name of theology than could ever be taught. There are about five different interpretations to this passage. I'm not going to chase all of those at all. I want to read you the quote by Swindoll because I think it's an excellent quote. In the world, women are liberated more and restrained less. Around the home, they are assaulted more and supported less. On the job, they are respected more and exploited less. And at the church, they are confused more and informed less. Now, can I just give you just kind of a summary statement by which I'm going to approach this. I don't think the role of men in the church should be interpreted by the homosexual agenda, and I don't think the role of women in church should be interpreted by the feminist agenda. I think the role of men and and women in the church should be interpreted by the biblical mandate. Let's forget what the world's telling us we're supposed to be. Let's find out what God says we're supposed to be. Now. Here's the historical setting, and it's very important for you to understand the historical setting if you're going to understand this passage of Scripture because you have to interpret Scripture in light of its context. You don't pull Scripture out and isolate it from the context and the culture in which it was written. You have to interpret it in light of the context. There were only two places in that world, in that Greek culture in Ephesus, where women could rise to an equal status to men. You ready? One was a prostitute. A prostitute was allowed to discuss politics, society, culture, literature, anything she wanted to discuss with her companion. The second area where you could have equality was if you were a priestess in a temple cult. Only in those two areas could you have equality with men in that culture. And so Paul is writing to deal with the cultic influence in the life of the church, and he's trying to deal with it in the light of the fact that Ephesus had over 10% of its population were prostitutes in the temples. And so they were not only prostitutes, many of them were priestess, and they were major players in worship, in the temple worship. Being involved with a temple prostitute was an act of worship in those cult religions. And so Paul is writing in light of that, and he tells the women there to be models. First of all, models of modesty, verses 9 and 10. I like the way the message translates this. Not primping before a mirror or chasing the latest fashions, but doing something beautiful for God and becoming beautiful doing it. Modestly just means to avoid extravagance. Avoid extravagance. This was a culture where, by the way, the dress, this kind of dress, this extravagant dress, was often associated with promiscuous and insubordinate women or a symbol of a woman who had become unfaithful to her husband. That's how you knew that a woman was on the move, by the extravagant dress. Let me just sum it up this way. Do your clothes reflect a godly heart? It's just that simple. You see, this is not about uh, styles. It has nothing to do with stylish clothes. It has to do with priorities. What's your priority? Is your priority to be humble and modest before God? It's not about whether you buy your clothes at Kmart or Neiman Markup. Uh, it's, It's about your heart. Models of modesty. Now, does that mean I can't dress nice if you're a woman? No, absolutely, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that when you come to worship, don't draw attention to your attire, draw attention to your godly countenance. Let people see Christ in you. Let them comment on your godliness. Now, what Paul is saying, I think, is your beauty is not in what you wear, it is in who you are. Now, men, I'm going to go back and say a word to you. If you marry a body, every year you're together, you're going further and further out of business because bodies deteriorate but people develop. And by the way, if you marry a body, just remember, your body's going downhill too. (laughs) Secondly, models of reverence. Verse 11 is an imperative, present imperative. It's not an optional. Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. Let your women keep silent. Now, let me give you the background on Corinth. In Corinth, Paul forbade the women from interpreting a prophecy. Here's why. The women in Corinth, you remember Corinth was carnal. The women were passing judgment on their husbands' revelations and teachings. And they were standing up in the assembly and disagreeing with what their husbands were saying. Their husband would give a prophecy or a revelation or a teaching and they would exercise authority over their husbands and say, you're not right. And what they were doing was they were undermining and publicly dishonoring their husband's headship as spiritual leader of the home. So Paul says, don't do that. Don't embarrass your husband. Don't try to exercise authority over Don't correct him when he is teaching or preaching. Don't correct him when he's exercising the role that God's given him to do. Now, he uses the word quietly. That word quietly means calmness, or settled down or undisturbed, not ruling, unruly. And Paul is referring to a quiet spirit. And he is saying that in public worship, women are being submissive to the male leadership. Now, I thought about not using this illustration, but I'll go ahead and do it. When I served on the Foreign Mission Board, I met some of the most venomous, fire-eating, dragon-slayer people on the face of the earth. They were the national leadership of the WMU. I could show you letters in my files that would singe the hair on your arms, written by women, who lead the WMU. Now, let me just tell you something, folks. Some people say, why don't we have a strong WMU in this church? I can tell you part of the reason is the national WMU leadership has a feminist agenda. They do not want to talk about missions anymore. What they want to do now is talk about the role of women in society. And the WMU's charter says, we have one purpose to teach people about missions and to win souls. And they want to get off of that. I've sat in meetings with them, I've talked to them, I've seen them, and I'm going to tell you something, there is no model for reverence there. I've watched them talk ugly to the president of the Foreign Mission Board, I've watched them talk ugly to the chairmen of the Foreign Mission Board, and men trying to be gracious, and men trying to be nice, and I mean just getting blasted. It looked like a boxing match. It was a little tough. And what happened is, somebody forgot to read 1 Timothy chapter 2 because we wouldn't have that if they were reading that there are to be models of reverence. Verse 12, models in ministry. Models in ministry. The key to verse 12 is don't try to supplant the male leadership in the church. Now, <clears throat> this may open be open to a lot of interpretation, but I, I I believe Paul is referring here to a woman exercising authority over a man as an overseer or an elder. And, and I think this is... This is what I believe the passage teaches. I believe that a woman can serve and a woman can teach, but she must do it under the authority of the male leadership of the church and under the authority of her husband. I do not believe it's inappropriate for a woman to teach a couples class as long as she's doing it with the blessings of the church and the blessings of her husband. I don't see any problem with that because she's doing it in a submissive role. I think some people have tried to take that and say, a woman, I heard about a guy who was trying to get rid of all the women working in extended session because he said if women are working in extended session, they have authority over males. They're six months old. I mean, what is wrong with this? I'm sitting there going, you've got to be. I mean, this guy's serious as a heart attack. We got to get the women out. It's got to be just men in extended session because, you know, I'm going to tell you something. If we staffed extended session with men, all the women would bring their babies in here. <laughs> no way! I'm letting a room full of men handle my kids. Those guys would drop them and bounce them off the floor. I'm not going to do that. I think you have to use some common sense, folks. And I think we're to be models in ministry. If a woman I believe Paul is saying has a question she is to first ask her husband or a male leader, not to bring it before the church before she has first asked the leadership or her husband in her home. Now, I didn't write this stuff, (laughs) Paul wrote it. I'm just telling you what I believe Paul's saying and what what I believe the best commentators that I can find are saying about this. There'd be models in humility, verses 13 through 15. Now in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 as part of what happened in the fall God said your desire shall be for your husband Now in Genesis 3:16 God was not talking there about sexual desire he was talking about a desire to dominate that one of the results of the fall is that a woman will want to dominate a man It's just part of what happened in the fall. It's a universal truth. It was a universal curse. Eve was deceived and Adam rebelled. George Harris has a great quote. Women are a little more inclined to be deceived and men are a little more inclined to be rebellious. What Paul is arguing for is for the divinely ordained roles and what he's saying is his concern is not dominance but role reversal. That there would be a reversal. God created Adam first, then Eve. Eve decided to strike out on her own. She was first deceived, and Adam just went headlong into sin on his own. Now verse 15 is easily misinterpreted. Let's read it again. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with (laughs) self-restraint. Boy, there's been a lot of paper and ink wasted on this one. Well, that means that we're all supposed to have 12 kids. You get away from me, pal. (laughs) I can tell you, boy, there's no woman alive that'll vote for that, you know. Let's just just keep going. Let's just have kids, let's just have kids. You go somewhere else. (laughs) Now, what is Paul saying? Is he saying if you have children, you're saved? No. Paul has made a transition. He shifted from Eve to the women of Ephesus, and now he's talking about women in general. Notice the word is plural, they. He's talking about women in general. Now, there's in your notes this little note. Salvation can be used in two ways in Scripture, salvation from damnation and salvation from damage. The second is used here, salvation from damage. Childbearing is a figure of speech that Paul is using to illustrate his argument. Now. Kind of stay with me, this is a little hard. In Genesis 3, 15, God promised the woman that from her womb would come the seed and through the womb, evil would be destroyed. Now what Paul is referring back to is that Eve stood on the promise after the fall that through her womb would come one who would ultimately crush Satan who had deceived her it was through the womb that that happened and Eve stood on that promise now Eve lost both her sons remember she lost one because he was a murderer and lost the other one because he was the victim of the murderer and God gave her a third son does anybody know what his name was Seth you know what the name Seth means new foundation. God said, I'll build a new foundation. Cain and Abel are out of the picture. I'll make a new foundation. Now, let me just kind of give you this to write down. This is about as simple a way as I know to explain this. In the garden, woman was the gateway for the devil. In the manger, woman was the gateway for the Messiah. In the garden, woman was the gateway for the devil. In the manger, woman was the gateway for the Messiah. And what God is saying is, and what Paul is trying to say in this passage is, is that it is through women that our salvation came. Gentlemen, you should respect women because if there hadn't been a virgin seen by God as pleasing in his sight, we would have no Messiah because God chose to come through the womb of woman. He chose to become a baby and to be born through the womb. Oh, well, there's the devil got in. But it's also where Messiah got in too. And I think what this is trying to say is God's primary role for women is a nurturing ministry, whether it's with children or without children the woman has a nurturing role that men I mean we're not nurturers guys you know that I mean you know we we get in a situation and the women you know they they can they can just nurture they can just they can do that and we kind of walk up and kind of go you you okay oh, don't cry i hate it when women cry you, you you doing all right there you know and when our kids come to us you know what we do guys go to your mother go, go just, just go go find your mother go Go, go get your mother. Don't, don't get in my lap. My shirt is starched. Just go find, go, go find your mother. She doesn't mind getting dirty. Go, Go to her. Paul is saying that women have an exalted role, that of nurturing. And quite honestly, I think we do women a disservice when we lower them to the level of equality because if you study history, history tells us that as a society treats women, it either prospers or it falls. Women should be honored. They're different. We have the same inheritance but not the same function. And God has instituted clear lines, but you got to agree with this. Every time we strengthen the home, we strengthen society when the home is encouraged and when moms are encouraged and when families are encouraged, we strengthen society. Now, don't wait for the world to applaud this truth. Don't wait for carnal people to accept it, but God expects the saints to apply it. And so here's my closing point. Men, in the realm of prayer, we've got a lot to do. Women, in the realm of being models, you have a standard that's given in Scripture. When we come together in worship, we are to work together to make sure that our worship is pleasing to God and that we are building a biblically authentic ministry. Now, don't walk out of here and say that I said women aren't supposed to do anything. There are too many references to women in Paul's writing. And don't say, Paul's a chauvinist. There are too many references to women that God used and women who are a significant part of the ministry of Paul for you to ever go out and say that. We are the same in essence. We are different in function. That means that a woman may have the gift of pastor-teacher, but she would not hold the office because it's an office for male leadership according to 1 Timothy chapter 2. But she can certainly have the gift. I, I'll tell you a great story. <laughs> Ann Graham-Lotz, Lots, is Billy Graham's daughter and I think is the best preacher in the family outside of Billy. Uh, Ann graham Lots was speaking at the women's conference at Bellevue and uh, Joyce Rogers made Adrian come out and listen to her. She says, now, Adrian, you come out here, and you sit down, and you listen to this woman, and you tell me she's not a preacher. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you something, boy. When Anne Graham Lotz teaches, boy, power of God comes down. You know why? Because she functions under her father's authority and under her husband's authority, and because she functions biblically, she will not go speak anywhere unless... She has the approval of the male leadership. In fact, she was scheduled to speak in Oklahoma one year, and some idiot in some church somewhere decided he was going to boycott and picket and storm the platform and get her off of it because a woman's not supposed to be speaking when she had been asked by men to do so. Godly men in positions of authority. You know what she did? She said, I withdraw. I'll not go anywhere where it's not accepted and received. That's biblical. You see, each of us have something to do in this church. We're to be models of prayer, models of humility, models of reverence, whatever it is. And we can spend a lot of time, guys, trying to look at the women saying, y'all, y'all need to do your part. But I can tell you, there's a whole lot more women that can point back at us and say, why aren't y'all doing yours? Thank you for watching the Sherwood Hour. If you would like a copy of the tape that you have just seen, please write for it at the address that you see on the screen or call us at area code 912-883-1910. Ask for tape number 970817B.